and Terry has put the thumb in the air, so I, th- I assume that that, mm-hmm. that uh, all systems are somewhat operable. Okay, so you're telling me to get going here, so I can take my glasses off so I can see what I'm doing. Okay, well, cool. Well, here we are, off and running. We, we suppose January the 23rd, uh, 2022, lecture discussion number 160 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Genesis. And Dave has written something for me to read. And it says, we figured out how to send notifications to all of you who have our app. I'm not part of the we here. If you don't already have the Cliffside app, you can download it from the homepage of our website. That's www.cliffside.org. Now, if you've already have the app and you're not receiving the messages we started to send out, and again, I'm not part of the we. I send no messages out. You can turn on your notifications. I can't do it. I am not the I. <laughs> oh, I am the eye, because I don't have a phone. That's true, I do not have a phone, but Supper Dave tells me it's easy. Ha. He says here, you just, you just tap on the three horizontal bars in the top left corner, then tap on the little gear in the upper right, and from there just tap to the notifications bar, and you can turn on notifications from Cliffside in there. What? <laughs> okay. This will eventually end up in the firewood uh, yeah. pile, right here. We call that kindling. Okay, January 23rd, 2022. Obviously, we missed last week for our, uh, COVID reasons. We all had to, we all had to sequester ourselves because of exposure. Uh, fortunately, I assume I can speak for all of us. We, I, I t- tested negative, so, and they seem to have also tested negative, so we ev- uh, evaded it one more time. Ah, today is going to be devoted to the cleanup on aisle four type uh, operation because last we or no, it's not last Sunday, January 9th, two weeks ago, that was an information dump. I just backed the truck up, beep, 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 and just buried as much of it as I could dump. And it's something that I do quite a bit. Now it's time to go back and, and sift through it and pick up the gleanings and try to figure out what I was talking about. So mostly... The uh, information last week, not January 9th, sorry, mostly it was about the theology of death, uh, with much of the focus being on this aspect of the Christian theology of death, and that is dust. And I cannot overemphasize dust. The body of Adam was formed from dust. The bodies of the animals were correspondingly formed from dust. That's Genesis 2-7, Ecclesiastes 3:18 through 20. Uh, dust is an important, if not critical, fact, and it, it almost is always overlooked. And, and the, this truth about dust being critical leads naturally to these dust questions. Because there are, and I have to say dust carefully because I have this over-enlarged tongue and I had to take speech therapy as a young child and I flunked it. So here we go. The dust questions come from the fact that dust is so critical and such a crucial element in Genesis 2-7. And the dust questions eventually resolve to the quantum physics argument which we discussed two weeks ago, that being super-deterministic versus indeterministic. I hope you remember that. Right now, half my audience is just falling asleep again and is watching football. Indeterminism, just to repeat, repeat some of that, that's the position of physicists who believe that not all events, let me say that again, not all events are predetermined. In other words, events are undecided. That's the basis of a scientific experimentalist. Uh, and... Uh, Events, there is, there is uncertainty in the creation. Heisenberg's, uh, uh, view on uncertainty. Whereas superdeterminism is the view that there is no true possibilities anywhere in the universe. Nothing is random. There is no uncertainty. Everything is predetermined, preordained, and there is no free will, if you will. 
And obviously this is a theological debate. It originates in theology. It is a theological discussion that goes on constantly. And the accountability, which is the theological side of this, it's the debate is the accountability and the omniscience concerns. In other words, how do I reconcile judgment or accountability with God's omniscience? Uh, if you want to think of it this way, judgment for sin within the framework of omniscience. That's the debate that rages in the Christian church today. Uh, Dave does this all the time. He's fighting in this particular arena. And that's why you hear me repeating the sentences that omniscience is not causation. I say that all the time. I need to say it more. Omniscience is not causation. And free will cannot be extracted from existence. I say these as many times as I can. You cannot take free will away from existence. When you do, you no longer have existence as God defines it. And I say it over and over and over again. And clearly these statements are indeterministic. So you can quickly understand, you can quickly establish where I reside with respect to the subject. And I have long been fascinated by the compatibility, the compatibility, I have to, gosh, I'm having trouble today of the Christian theology of death and quantum physics. There is this absolute interesting relationship between the theological aspect of death in the Christian theology and quantum physics, the raging dispute between the superdeterminists and the indeterminists. And again, I should say the first discussion that has ever occurred in this particular subject was biblical instruction. The Bible, without dispute, brings this issue to the forefront as you all know, right there, starts out with it. Genesis 2, 7. Genesis 1 through 3. And that's the first. Albert Einstein is the most known of the determinists. Einstein, Poldolsky, and Rosen. But Einstein, of course, is the most known and the most considered. He revealed um, what he thought with his famous, relatively famous statement that God does not play dice with the universe. That's what he said. And people don't understand what he meant by that very often. Essentially, he's saying that there is no free will. So that places Einstein firmly in agreement with somebody. Who, do, who is he now agreeing with? He says there's no free will. Well, he's in agreement with Satan as revealed in Genesis 3, 4 and 3, 5. Satan also believes, also teaches, also proclaims, also lies that there is no free will. And Satan and, and Einstein's right there with him. They're side by side. And Satan says in his heart, Ezekiel 28, 17, Isaiah 14, 13, that because there's no free will, there's no accountability. Psalm 10, 6, Tom, Psalm 10, 13. And also involved in that is Job 1 and Job 2 and Psalm 10, as you know. In other words, Satan's position has always been scripturally that judgment is impossible and it's negated by omniscience. Omniscience dictates all events. Therefore, eventually you get to the point where God is evil. You, again, I've said this thousands of times. I keep saying it because I have to. If he's evil, then he's the source of all evil. As you all know, we keeps going on all the time. Okay, as you know. So far I've done two of them. And I'll be saying it a lot today. Now, obviously, I have delved into this battle many, many times. And I do it because of its constancy. And again, I bring up Supper Dave here. He is delving into this battle every day, aren't you? Almost every day. I don't do it every day because people are tired of hearing me. And I, I, again, I do it because it, it's actually it's approaching ubiquity. There's, the church is, is constantly roiling in this area and and both sides are would, would i be fair to say entrenched dave and no one's there's no con conversion going on it's pretty much an entrenched condition is it not yeah uh, it's not a whole lot different than our political structure today so it, in the theological disciplines it's everywhere and it's also everywhere simultaneously in the physics arena which i think is fantastic Obviously, I love to watch the physicists fight over this. And every time I see one that is, I get all riled up and all excited. And I want to watch them fight because they should be fighting over it. And I submit it's critical that the church respond to the physics. Uh, what do I want to say? The, the physical, the physics <coughs> cohort, I guess, would be a good word. 
And I think the church needs to respond to it. We need to push back against super deterministic evolutionary atheistic concepts. Say that quickly, you get a cookie. Okay? If we don't, they're going to gain inroads that cannot be dislodged. And I think that's already happened. I can see the church has been corrupted by this kind of philosophy, this physics pushing or position. It's already occurred. The church has today just absolutely abhors, abhors complexity. It wishes to focus on the simple things. Proverbs 122, 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 5. I'm going to say to you really quickly, if I have created, I hope I have created, I haven't created, if I have influenced a wise congregation, a wise congregation, Proverbs 4, 5 through 13, is never going to buy a Joel inspiration cube. It's just not going to do it. Unless they just, yeah, I got a, I got a wonderful letter here from the person that sent me this. Sherry from somewhere. And she writes this. I hope I can say it. It's not easy. Hello there, Mr. Teacher. Hope the Cliffsidian Brigade is, go- is doing well. So, I'm in Wally World checkout line. You know, where my, you know where the impulse buy stuff is. And I see this box right on the edge of the shelf. Joel Austin Inspiration Cube. And my jaw hits the floor. First with astonishment that this was actually a thing. Then by the ensuing disgust and appall and that goes with all Austinish things. Twenty-five bucks. That's what, what it costs. Now I'm looking around to see if anyone is sharing this moment with me, and of course no one was. I didn't buy it because why on earth would I want this silly square of stupidity? Why would I need this blathering box of buffoonery? So I'm at home later reviewing the day in my head, and I think about this little twaddling toy of tripe. This flap doodling four square of foolishness, this queer quadrate of quackery, and I say to myself, who wants this? <laughs> Mr. Pastor desperately needs to open that little changing cube, or that little clanging cube of cod swallop. And then I laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And the rest is history. So I thought that was brilliantly done, and I wanted to bring that to you. Okay? But this is in congregations that have been properly discipled would never buy that nonsense. They'd never they'd look at it and laugh. It's junk. And yet it's 25 bucks and I'm sure it's sold hundreds of thousands. And that is why quantum physics is so valuable to the Christian church. Max Planck was a was just brilliant. He was an indeterminist. He said, when we get to the bottom of everything that's in quantum physics, we find consciousness. And then, well, what a powerful statement. And there's hundreds of them that have, John Stuart Bell, as I read it a couple of weeks ago. Anyway, the body of Adam was formed from dust. Genesis 2, 7, the body of animals were formed from the dust. Ecclesiastes 3, 18, 20. Only the bodies were formed from the dust. And that is a critical to understand that, that's two incredible refutations of superdeterminism right there. The bodies of humanity and the bodies of animals, the living beings, refutes the fact that they were made from dust, refutes superdeterminism. Both of this, what I just said, both about the animals and the bodies and the humans and the bodies should be trumpeted in every church all the time, which would mean even mediocre, outright, outright bad trumpet players. Would have a place to go. Good news for me. I know what you're thinking because it's my job to know what you're thinking. Okay, Mr. Answer Me That Dude. Okay, Mr. Highly Trained Religious Professional. How does the bodies of mankind and animals being made from dust have anything to do with indeterminism and superdeterminism? Huh, huh, huh. And another huh. Well, because I wish I could do... Uh, Ronald Reagan, well, I just can't. What I said last week is that there is a primable dust, which does not mean prime evil. It means primable, which means there is a first dust. And we sort of discussed that again in lecture 159. 159. 
the first dust, the dust that God used to form Adam and the animals. Think, if you want to think of it this way, a sourdough pancake starter. I, I, I want to know all about this. Where was it? Why did he use it? All the, all the questions that fly out. The sourdough pancake starter, those under 40s will not get that reference, will they? You have to, maybe you have to be under six, uh, maybe 60 and over, huh? Right now, everybody thinks pancakes come from what? That's right. Eggos and, and Pop-Tarts come from what? Toasters and the freezer. And again, I realize I don't have any listeners under 40, so it's not a big problem for me to make those kind of references. Maybe I got two or three, and you know who you are. Why did God use this dust? This dust. He picked the dust. Did he know what the dust was? Did he know where the dust was? Does he know where the dust came from? Does he know what the dust is made out of? Does he know why it got there? How it got there? Does he know all of that? He's omniscient. Absolutely he does. Why did he pick that dust? I want to know where that dust went. was. What are the meanings? What is God's definition of dust? Last Sunday, lecture 159, I attempted to make the case that sin and death are symbiotic and in the same manner as dust and death, also death and aging. I said all of these fit together. They Also, uh, death and aging, that's fundamentally what? Death over time or death through time. And time begets deterioration. And those of us who currently, I'm being the foremost in this group, uh, uh, currently beset by deterioration over time, but we're anxious to testify of the symptoms to everyone who is under the age of 40 and doesn't listen to these lectures. I can go on and on and on about my conditions. And I like doing it. Ask everybody. Uh, infinitum, of course, is Latin for infinity, which is why I have zero to few listeners under 40 right there. Uh, zero also is a concept along with infinity. They're not numbers. Zero and infinity are united, as you know. But let me point something out here. Huzzah, a point cometh. We have a list. So let me write the list on the board as best I can. We have death and sin. If you want to think of it this way, you can think of it as death-sin. There is a connection here. We have death, dust. Death and dust have a relationship. Death and decay or deterioration or death over time. So I can go ahead and put death and time right next to it. Oops, ah, my pen broke. Death and time. Oops, not Tim. I don't even know who Tim is. Death and darkness. And you know that darkness has something to do with death because God gets rid of it in the New Jerusalem. Uh, death and the curse. And here's the tricky one. We have death and Satan and dust. So that's our list. Uh, okay. I got the little tip that goes on the end of this. Yes, I am proposing uh, that the body returning to dust, death, which, remember, is for our sake. It's for our sake. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. It's for our sake, and therefore it has to be for the sake of the animals. So it's for everything that is made from dust. Death, the fact that the body returns to dust is for the sake of those. And that becomes the question, right? Why must the bodies return to dust? I'll open this up for you. Go ahead and yell at me. Why is it that bodies go to dust? What is his point? He wants, doesn't want this in that sense, but he makes it happen because there's a meaning and a purpose for it. Why do they decay? When you put one in the ground and you dig it up a couple of centuries later, how much of it is left? 
They go to dust. The beginning of the answer to that question is the revelation that Satan will eat dust and death forevermore. He will do that for eternity. The implicit aspect of this Genesis 3.14 declarative is that Satan is so much associated with death that he will taste it. He will ingest it for eternity. And that tells you what's going on with why your bodies go to dust. Satan is a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44. These are the words of Christ. Christ said that. Christ is the one who created Satan, who made Satan. He says that he was a murderer from the, Gideon, from the beginning. He's the Lord God Almighty himself. My flipping is improper. And he raises the most interesting of the interesting questions with these words. The most interesting of the interesting question is when is the beginning of Satan's murdering? When did it happen? Keep in mind the Apostle John was he was going to do something every single sentence of his gospel. He was relentless. His gospel is unceasingly saying the same thing over and over again, providing evidences that Christ Jesus is the living God in the flesh. So how does this question of Satan's first murder prove the deity of Christ? Because John is saying that it is. And John is right. He has the Holy Spirit explaining it to him, right? Hey, just the instrument. Well, if you, if you read further the text of John 8, 42 through 59, you'll note that Christ is speaking to the Pharisees here when he says Satan was a murderer from the beginning. He says to them, you belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out his desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, refusing to uphold the truth. He, Satan, is the father of lies. So what does that make the Pharisees? Murdering liars. Just like Satan. How is it that they are murdering people? Jesus goes on to say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. So which death? Is he talking about there? He also said, says, ultimately in the end of this, he resolves it all or he ends it with this fantastic statement, before Abraham, I am. Ego, he me. Which he is the being. He is beingness and existence. He says all of that. Before Abraham, I, I am beingness. I am consciousness. I am existence. I am eternity. All of those things are tied up in ego imi. And this conversation ends with the Pharisees trying to do what to him? As soon as he says, I am, what do they try to do? They pick up stones to kill him. Because they're what? Murderers. And then Christ, you know, so, so again, when they pick up the stones to murder Jesus Christ, beingness, he tells them, I am the existence. I am the one that is giving you beingness. I am the source of all life. They pick up, they want to kill him for that. And they prove that they are spiritual and physical murderers. And, and you'll understand, I hope, when I'm done with this, how it is that they are murdering as much as they are. So all of this, and that I just brought up in, uh, is there's some interesting things here. Let me throw this in here off to the side. He says, I am, but then he does something fantastically to prove that he is the I am. He walks through them. He passes through them as if they are nothingness. Uh, and that, as you heard me say before, is the first record of quantum tunneling. We more physics. Okay. How does Christ know then the beginning of Satan's lies and murders? Duh. He knows when Satan began to be a liar and a murderer. Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning and Christ knows when that beginning is or was inside of time. Christ knows John 20, 21, 17, John 19, 28. He knows everything. And in order to know everything, what is required to know all things? What's required? Omniscience, omnipresence, timelessness. I would submit that, that infinity is required. How many things in all things? Especially if you start talk, talking about particles. How many particles are there? How many electrons in the universe? The numbers are ridiculous. And he knows every single thing. He knows all things. 
And as you know, um, uh, and I'm going to, I'm going for the record. This I am is also a statement of beingness. It is and timelessness. So he's telling these these guys, I am the being and I'm outside of time and I am infinite. And that is what God, what John is trying to point out. He is the source of life. He's the source of existence. He's the source of consciousness. He's outside of time. He has to be God. Has to be. Nobody else could be that. Nobody else could say it. Nobody else could pass through uh, physical beings like him. Nobody else ever has. So, back to the question. Who was the first one to be murdered by Satan? Victim zero, if you will. And that's a trick. I shouldn't have done it. But I wrote it down. There's no such thing as victim zero. Why? Why is there no victim zero? Why is there no patient zero? Why is there no, no zero? Because zero isn't a number. Zero is nothingness. So if there's a patient zero, then there's a patient nothing. And that doesn't make any logical sense. So who was patient one? Who was the first person that Satan murdered? And most are going to say who? And say Eve, right? He murdered Eve. Well, is that right? They'll say, they'll trumpet it. The woman was the first murdered by Satan, they say. Are they right? Christ is the one who defines life and death, therefore. If he's defining life, he also gets to define death because he will understand what death is more than we could ever even imagine. Therefore, Christ defines what else? Murder. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. He cannot be murdered. So what what would you think we would want to know right there? I need to know what word it is that I have to keep because I don't want to die and I don't want to be murdered. I want everlasting life. I'm, I'm Sign me up. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. He cannot be murdered. What's the word? Obviously, Christ is defining death here in that statement. He said he shall never taste death. So he's defining it. What he says death is. Obviously, uh, Revelation 2.17 uh, and Revelation 3.7-12 come into play here as well. Which is, as you know, up to four. That's the hidden manna and the white stone and the new name and the new name that Christ writes on these who keep his name and have not denied Christ's name. Revelation 3.8, Revelation 3.12. That's what comes into play. His promise to those who keep his word is that they'll never taste death. And Satan will always taste death. So question becomes, how does Satan always taste death? Those who believe Christ will never taste death. And John 8, 42 through 59 connects to Genesis 3.15. And Genesis 3.15 and Genesis 3 is everywhere, as you know, in Scripture. Look at me go. If he knows who is going to be murdered and who is going to taste death, then he knows... Who is in where? The Matthew 25, 41, Lake of Fire. He knows. He knows who's in the book of life. The Lamb's book of life. It's his life. It's his book. He's the one that wrote the names. He's the one that writes the names. And that means that he is the ancient of days, the judge of all things. John 5, 22. The judge who dispenses out life and death, pardons and sentences. He's the one that does it. And Jesus knows the fathers, knows the fathers, sorry, John 8, 55. And what's necessary to know the triune Godhead, because that's a triune verse, Genesis 126, 322, the Elohim, the us. If you're going to know the Father, if you're going to know the Godhead, then you have to be something. You have to be infinite because the Godhead's infinite. So infinity must come from infinity, as you know. Okay, back to Satan here really fast. When was the beginning of Satan? If Satan was a murderer from his beginning, what's Christ's definition of the beginning of Satan? Because Christ said it, right? Because his definition, once again, is not typically our definition. I propose that there was a creation of the son of the morning star, Revelation 9.1, the anointed cherub. And that's the beginning of Satan. In a sense that that's the beginning of the being. 
that becomes Satan. I hope that made sense. And there are two different events. There's the creation of the sun of the morning star and the anointed cherub. And then there's the beginning of Satan. They're not the same thing. Ezekiel 28 is on my side, I think. Okay, Ezekiel 28, in my opinion, is on my side here. I don't think anymore. I'm going to say it definitively. So is Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, Revelation 22 through 3, Isaiah 14, 15, Psalm 10. Take the information of Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, Revelation 9, 1, Revelation 22 through 3. Keeping in mind Satan and the seed of the Antichrist. Or the seed of Satan. I'm sorry, what did I say? Satan and the seed of Satan, which is the Antichrist. Those are two distinct persons and they amalgamate. And it's very confusing for people to figure this stuff out. Meaning that they do similar things and they suffer similar fates and they're described in similar ways in the Bible, but you have to figure out who's who. Uh, It's necessary to wade through the information, assign to the proper individual what is pertinent. In other words, what is supposed to be of the Antichrist, what is supposed to be of Satan. It looks like they're the same person all the time in the Bible, but they're not. There are distinctions. Psalm 22, Isaiah 7 are other kinds of examples of this. This is the biblical principle of double reference. There's two events, two persons that are separated by something. Time. The Bible does it all the time. The Bible is outside of time. It's such a valuable thing. That's why it does it. It wants you to know, listen, I'm giving you information about two people. You think it's one person, but it's two people. And they are separated by vast amounts of time. So it looks like it's the same thing for both of them. But it's not. Because they're individual persons. And and no other book does this. It's amazing. Double reference. Prophecy, by definition, is the ability to see outside of time, future time. Revelation is John the Apostle seeing and witnessing future time. John was an eyewitness to the tribulation. He saw the tribulation. Think about that. Thousands of years before it happened. He saw it. He describes it. Anyway, knowing that the Bible will co-mingle two events separated by time, great gaps of time in a single sentence, certainly in a paragraph, the students of Scripture, which I hope is you, must carefully negotiate things like who is being discussed here and when. So when when crime makes a crime, when Christ makes a a, a statement about the a time about time, holy mackerel, honey child. When Christ makes a statement about time, you just have to go, oh, my goodness. The one who is outside of time is talking about time. How, how complex is this? He said Satan was a murderer from the beginning. That's a statement about time. It's also a statement about Satan. And again, who is being discussed and when? Satan and the Antichrist are commonly treated by double reference. Okay, where was I? Where am I going? Jesus Christ, the light of life, the resurrection and the life, John 8, 12, John 11, 25. Life must come from life. The law of biogenesis. Beingness must come from beingness. Consciousness must come from consciousness. All that stuff that we can't say enough. Christ is repeatedly saying that he is the source, the only source of life, the ego in me, over and over and over again. I am, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. He never stops. Ego in me, ego, ego in me. I am beingness, I am consciousness, I am life. I am the existence one, the existent one. Do you believe this, he asks. It's a binary question. Do you believe me? I am the I am. Do you believe me? He says it over and over and over again because of what the meaning of the ego in me is. The point is, how many points can this guy make, you're saying? Make him stop. Jesus Christ is the one who gives life to all that are living. He probably might know the definition of life and the definition of death and the definition of murdering. His definition of murdering and our definition of murdering are not the same. 
No other definitions should be considered but his definitions. Throw your definitions away and, and cling to his definitions. Which now leads us back to that question from last week. Is death real? That's a tricky question. That's a complex question because what do you have to do? You have to define death. And your your position and your definition of death is not going to be considered. I already said that. So if you define death, what definition are you using? That's one of the central questions from, from the previous week. This question is, again, delicate. It's problematic. As, as is the statement that goes with it, death is not real. You'll see that a lot. Or death is mute. Remember that? Death is not real. Very common. Most of the, most religious, most theological, uh, most theological entities all say one or both of those. Death is not real or is death real? Both forms of that require that no other definition be even thought of in order to successfully disembark onto a translucent platform. In other, in order to have something that makes sense, you've got to have the correct definitions. How about that? Saying it that way. For example, define death, define reality, what real is, what is reality, uh, the physical or the spiritual. Which one is real? As you know, George Berkeley. There is no reality. Max in the physical realm. Max Planck. There is no reality. There's only consciousness. Which is real? And that's why philosophers and theologians for centuries say death is not real. That death is defined as a physical process. As you know. How do you pronounce A-Y-K? I happen to know. Ake. So I don't have to say, as you know anymore, I can just say what? Ache. Okay. Christ himself. And again, obviously the Bible really lays this out. It, it, it provides the narration that is necessary on this issue. Christ himself, whose definition is to be sought. Uh, I said that goofy. We need to seek Christ's definition. We need that's that's whose definition we need to be finding specifically addresses is death real? Death is not real. Matthew ten twenty seven thirty four through thirty nine. So let me read that. He actually tells us. He talks about it. It's fantastic. So Matthew ten twenty seven. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. Now there's that dark light. And what you hear on the what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There he's doing it for you. He's laying it out. Is death real? What's the definition that makes death real? Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Number, do not fear, therefore, you are, uh, you are of more value than many sparrows. And then 1039, he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Again, he's defining death. So there you have it. God himself declaring the body and the spirit of the, uh, of the breath of life. Genesis 2-7, Ecclesiastes 12-7. The soul cannot be killed. By those, that's what he says. Do not fear those who can only kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul because the soul cannot be killed by those. Only the body can be killed by those. Christ does not call that death. And do not fear. Do not fear what? Do not fear the death of the body. Fear instead me. It's what he's saying. Fear me. I'm the judge of all things. John 5, 22 again. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Daniel 7, 9 through 10. Revelation 1, 13 through 17. Fear me. I'm the one. It's me, Jesus Christ, who sends the body and soul to the second death. And by the way, 
That explains that question. Let me go back and find it. Dust and resurrection. Which I alluded to. Better not get it in there. Because who goes to the second death? Who goes to the lake of fire? How do they get there? Their bodies are resurrected. That tells you i got to put that in a better spot. Dust. Resurrection. How does resurrection, how is it associated with death? I just gave you the answer. <clears throat> how does this also prove, because it does, dust resurrections proves Indeterminism. And destroys, refutes superdeterminism. The Bible just starts out beating it over the head with a bat. And the church goes, well, I don't know what to say. Read your Bible. I included the part about the physical death of sparrows here. None of them die without God knowing. Think about that. Not a single sparrow, not a single bird dies without God knowing. Mankind sells sparrows for pennies in this time. This About 75 cents to buy a sparrow at the time of Christ, right? Buy two sparrows, 75 cents in today's monetary system, which is changing all the time. Mankind believes the small birds are worthless, but none of them die. None of them falls to the ground without God knowing about it. Why does Christ say this in this context? Because he uses this image. God obviously thinks uh, sparrows are precious. Once again, God's thoughts are not man's thoughts. He doesn't think like us. And I should insert here Isaiah 9.6, which lists some of the names of Christ. One of them being everlasting father. So when he says, none of them fall to the ground apart from your father's will, he's talking about himself, Isaiah 9.6, which is, again, a triune verse, right? I've got uh, uh, Genesis 1.26.3.22 right here. This is the us. He's always talking about the us, the Elohim. Isaiah 9, 6 lists some of the names of Christ. Again, you should get them. Uh, Everlasting Father is right there in the middle. The composition of the triune Godhead is unknowable. Take careful steps when you talk about God because there are three persons who are the whole. Anyway, Christ knows the animal, every animal that dies. He knows them all. He makes this clear to his 12 apostles. Matthew 10 is Christ's instructions to his 12 apostles. Uh, why does he bring up these sparrows? And many many commentators fail to notice that he's brought up sparrows when he's talking about uh, death of the body and death of the soul and the body. The focus of the value, I'm sorry, most commentaries, they, they, they just look at the, the, the value of the twelve apostles over the value of the sparrows. They say, well, the sparrows are not, they're not nearly as valuable. Animals are not as valuable as humans. No. Well, I, I'm not going to argue that there is a hierarchy here. But I just want to point out that the, the context of the death of the sparrows is, is in the do not fear, therefore. Do not fear because I know every sparrow that dies. I know it. Why do I, why does he know? He can choose. He has a tremendous power, but he knows every animal that dies. That's the kind of person he is. And he says, don't fear death because I'm the kind of person that knows every single sparrow that hits the ground, every animal that is eaten and killed by another animal, every animal that is, I know all of this. That's the kind of person I am. You're more valuable. But know what kind of person I am and don't fear. Trust my character, my goodness. He knows when they die, these sparrows. He knows the name of them. Psalm 147.4, Genesis 2.19-20. How much does the creator of time really know about every single sparrow? Everything. Colossians 1.15-18, John 1.1-4. 1, 1 
If you answer that and you figure it out and you understand what he's trying to say to his 12 apostles as they go out amongst people who want to kill them, then uh, you become uh, very well educated on this particular topic. Anyway, for today, Jesus gives us his definition of death. He does. He gives it to it. He is the life. He is the resurrection. Obviously, Christ has no fear of death. But so he gives us this wonderful definition. Fear is incompatible. It's eliminated by omniscience and, omni- uh, and I'm, I'm sorry, omnipotence. You, ca- you can't have fear and be omniscient and omnipotent. It's impossible. It's, it's, fear is sin for, for Christ. And he's also omnipresent and timelessness. Duh, 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 and duh. And he keeps telling his disciples and us, by extension, the only death that matters, the only death that's real is what? The second death, that's right. Let the records show that Terry got it right. The only death that matters, that is real, is the second death. The great white throne judgment for those who do not receive the saving blood of Christ. So if you're confronted with the question, is death real? The answer is what? Yes, if death is defined by Christ. It is no if it it refers to the death of the body. In that case... In that sense, the death of the body is for our sake. It's important that it go to death. I have to turn this off. Or I have to shut this because I'm getting headlights. So I'll get that closed. Okay. God placed a restriction on the amount of time that mankind and animal will be in this current evil, sinful condition of this current evil, fallen world. And there has been a dynamic element to this restriction, limiting, specifically by dynamic, I mean changing. Because we have the post-Alluvian mankind and animals, and what have we seen with regard to death over time? We've seen the time compressed. And that raises the interesting question, why is the time for death different after the flood than before the flood. Some people think it's a genetic failure. But God even makes a statement about it, how long a man will have. Why did the antediluvians, anti, A-N-T-E, not anti, anti, before, why did the antediluvians have a much longer life than the post-diluvians? You would think, well, they're... there's more time for them to become incredibly wicked. They became incredibly evil, as Genesis 6 points out. So why why did God give them all that time? And then us, uh, the post-Diluvians, we don't have anywhere near the amount of time they had. And, and this somewhat changes or reverts during the millennial rule of Christ, where all except for the Isaiah 65.20s, everybody except for the Isaiah 6520s, Live for a thousand years. Once again, this is this wonderful mystery in Isaiah 65:20. A hundred years provides the solution to all of this. Why did He give them a hundred years? Because you get a hundred years if you're in Isaiah 65:20. Why do these, the sinners, the 100-year-olds, die, and they shall be accursed? It says. What does accursed mean to the Judge of all things? That's the destruction of the what? The body and the soul in where? The lake of fire. If you're accursed by God, that's where you're going. You choose it. Good for you, I guess. Not good for you. You choose that fate willingly. That fate. Anyone who dies at 100 in the millennium, the messianic kingdom, Christ himself on the throne in Jerusalem, there he is, can see him, can hear him. These who do this, they're considered to be a child or an infant. If you die at 100 years in the millennium, you're a child or an infant as a reference. Therefore, 100 years for the accursed. Death at 100 years in the millennium is effectively infant mortality. That's how it's describing it. Because everyone will live to a thousand years if they enter the kingdom. After the 75-day interval, the blessing of the 135th day, or 1335th day, Daniel 12, 12, ache. So, what sin results in death? What sin 
results in you being us human beings being accursed. What is the process? Obviously, the sinner has been given 100 years of time to do what? In Isaiah 65, 20, in the millennium. You get 100 years of time. Why? What is it that you're supposed to do in that 100 years of time? You have 100 years of time to do something. I'm going to tell you that, it is, that you have 100 years to believe Christ. You believe what he says about himself, ego e me, life and resurrection. You have a hundred years to believe that. Time always relates to mercy. However, after one hundred years of unbelief, judgment comes, and judgment must always come. Hebrews nine twenty seven. Why must judgment always come? We're back to accountability and judgment, super, super determinism versus indeterminism. We're right back to that subject because remember, Satan starts out by saying there is no accountability. Which is exactly what superdeterminism says. There is no accountability. The judge himself says no. He requires accountability for unbelief. And the sinner is accursed if it's if the sinner is still in unbelief. Revelation twenty one eight begins, calls them the fearful unbelieving. Abominable murderers. There's no commas here. Commas are not inspired. Sexually immoral. Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Okay, They're called abominable murderers. How do you murder somebody? Satan is a murderer from the beginning. How does he murder somebody? And they're liars. What are they lying about? He puts murderer and liar together. All liars. What are they lying about? Has something to do with death. Note that Revelation 21.8. Christ begins the list again with fearful unbelieving. Some translations say cowardly unbelieving. But unbelieving is what starts this statement by him. That's the foundation of it is unbelief. Revelation 21.8 is post-millennial. What do I mean by that? It implies that it, it implies that it applies to those who were in the millennium, because all of this is about the millennium at that point. There are a lot of, uh, there are, there are 65.20 Isaiahs in the millennium. And there are also those who were blessed on the 130, or the 1335th day. So we know who the 65.20 are. We can conclude that the Revelation 21.8 list of the Isaiah 65.20 is happening here. Overwhelmingly, in my opinion, the Revelation 28, as opposed to 21.8, the satanic army that mounts, that grows, it becomes huge. They would all have to be Isaiah 65.20s. All of them. And I've said many times, how many millions of people... How many billions of people today in the earth are under the age of 100? Literally everybody. Very few are not. The Isaiah 6520 are the last generation of the millennium. They are the progeny of those who came into the 1335th day of January 1212. And then so you've got to ask, how can anyone be unbelieving in the Messianic age? How much time between Satan's release and the attack on Jerusalem? There's a thousand, I see the hands. There's a, there's a thousand years to deal with here. Satan gets released and what's the first thing he does? Is he, he's able to convince people that are under the age of a hundred to attack God. It seems logically absurd, irrational, stark raving madness, but it's what happens. Christ is standing there. He's on the throne. Again, he can be seen. He can be heard. He's the only source of life, the only source of existence. He wants it. He's omniscient. He's merciful. He's loving. He wills that none perish in the lake of fire. But yet a whole bunch perish in the lake of fire. He wills that none should perish. 2 Timothy 2.13. But an uncountable number perish. How is that possible? If there is super determinism. See, which is true, indeterminism or superdeterminism? Explain. If he wills that none should perish, how is it that an uncountable number perishes? 
Nonetheless, uh, this is where we are. Infant mortality and, and occurs in the millennium in the sense that everybody who's 100 years is unbelieving dies so young. They die in their unbelief. Nonetheless, one of the exp- explanations of the differences with respect to the pre-flood world and the post-flood is the hypostatic union. Ache. That's the God-man, 1 Timothy 3.16. Jesus, God, Acts 2.32. He is not on his throne until the millennium when physical death is typically scarce. Until the millennium, sin is opposed by physical death. Does that make sense? Because it is. Physical death over time opposes sin because once you have physical death, it becomes very difficult for you to have any sin in the physical realm. You can't produce sin. You're you're in the intermediate state. My alarm's gone. During the millennium, physical death is an anomaly. It's a rarity. It doesn't happen. It's really rare until the very end when Satan is released and it becomes overwhelming. Christ is life. Life comes. Physical death flees from Christ. But there's still walking death. And the walking death returns again when Satan is released. And Satan's lie is embraced. Somehow his lie is murder. Madness flourishes again at the end of the millennium. Unbelief detonates. How does Satan accomplish this? Well, it's the same way he does it in Ezekiel 28.16. The abundance of his traffic. Matthew 23.15, the Pharisees travel sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much of a son of hell as yourself. That's what Christ says to them. You murder him. You convert him and that conversion is murder. Because he will be in an unbelieving condition and he will choose to go to the lake of fire. 25.41, Matthew. Finally, final thoughts. Satan's first murder was a suicide. In other words, the first to die, to taste death, was the star fallen, was the anointed cherub. He was first. He was the murdered from the beginning. He was the beginning of murder. Satan was the first of the created living beings to know evil from good. Which explains why he says that to the woman in Genesis 3, 4 through 5. You will not surely die. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. Because he knows good from evil. Obviously, Satan considered existence to be life. Existence is not life. That's an error that many others, angels and humans, replicate. Is existence not life? Life is defined by the one who is life, carries the requirement of contiguity, nearness, adjacency. With him, the one who gave the life requires that life, it will tell you that life is with me. Death is not, is, is separation, it's isolation, it's confinement, it's torment. Torment is the result of an evil mind. Everybody asks, why are people in torment in the lake of fire? Because there's only evil there. There's no good there. You're in a totally evil environment. Complete, total evil. And you're tormented by it. Good is a, how do I put it? Good opposes. Good provides peace. There is no good in the lake of fire. So tormented beings in the lake of fire have a dark mind, a debased mind, and and there's the self-infliction. With good removed, only evil is displayed. Good from evil. Complicated statement, a complicated principle. The word, the world as we know today is good with evil. And that's what Satan thought would happen. There would be good and there would be evil and there'd be good with evil. But in the lake of fire, there's no good. And there's that, that therefore means torment. There's nothing but torment. I just want you to imagine the good removed, a world, a place of only evil. Only evil is the culmination of death, the ultimate definition. Satan's miscalculation, again, is that good and evil could coexist. Why is this not capable of being true? Why does God put an end to that? Because he does. It can't be, they can't be together. I am the resurrection, oh, excuse me, I am the resurrection and the life, John 11, 25. 
resurrection and life. Why does Christ place them as if they are inseparable? Because they are. Ego emi again. When Christ says them with ego emi, and he does, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay, and now dust and resurrection. Why does the body go to this dust? Because there is a this dust. Why does the body go to this dust? And not simply go into oblivion. When the body dies, why doesn't it just go poof? It doesn't. It goes to dust. It could have just gone poof. Spirit leads, poof. Nothing. Everybody in the hospital that dies, we can't even imagine it, but I always want you to think about what else could have been done. And you could be lying in the hospital, your soul leaves, body disappears. He doesn't do it that way. He leaves that body. And then he does what? He resurrects it. And by resurrecting it, he proves indeterminism. He proves free will. And he disproves the lie of Satan. How does that all work? We'll find out next week.